This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. and welcome to the Better Reading Podcast. My name's Meg Mason and I'm so pleased that I get to take Cheryl Ackles' chair this week while she's on leave because it means that I'm currently sitting across the table from Jack Charles, whose memoir, Born Again Blackfeather, has just been released here in Australia. Jack, welcome. Thank oh, you so much for coming. Thanks very much, Meg. It's a, it's a hoot to be here on Better Reading and uh, I really don't know if my book's better reading, but... Uh, <laughs> Look, uh, no, know, well, big mobs of people it. are, you know, are interested in it, and so I'm just taking, a, you know, a leaf out of what's uh, gone on before, uh, varsity. Yeah. You know, um, you know, attracted many people's attention. Then uh, co-writing myself with Romerill, John Romerill, the great uh, playwright. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, adding my stories into Romerill's. Uh, uh, memories also of me to write Jack Charles versus the Crown, which became yes. a significant, uh, yes. well-travelled show. All of these, yeah. So you know, and then I thought, well, now that I'm practically into my dotage at 76 this year, September, a couple of days' time, Thursday, I should write the book. Yeah. And uh, so it was a hoot to be working with Nimella Benson from. She took a sabbatical from uh, ABC uh, Radio National. And we'd hike up to Triple uh, R to record stories, and so this is uh, kind of like this. It's just a, uh, a recollection of the the stories that uh, were recorded, and she uh, prompting me, yeah. uh, you know, uh, saying, "Well, we'll have a chapter on well, my brother Archie." Yeah, and this is what really comes across in the book because I was reading about it this morning in different comments from readers and they were that was sort of unanimous amongst them that, you know, I've got two here saying, um, you know, I could hear Uncle Jack reading this to me as I read. I felt like I was sitting down with Uncle Jack having a cup or having a yarn and listening to his story and there's definitely a sense of that that comes through and um, because I've now skipped our introduction, I should tell listeners that um, as well as being a memoirist now, you're also an award-winning actor, a musician, a ceramicist, an activist. You've done TED Talks and so many different things, but you're also, as you're very open about in the book, um, a former drug addict. You've been to jail more than once um, in your early years. You're a member of the Stolen Generation and you survived um, abuse in childhood. So... When you did sit down to write this with Miller, how did you even know where to begin? I mean, there's just, you know, the, the breadth and width of content is just phenomenal. So what I, was your intention in writing the I book? did leave it up to, to uh, Miller, And uh, it's pretty ironic that uh, the opening chapter is of my Burks. I've become pretty well known Meaning because of my but, being yeah. offside, but yeah. society being one of Melbourne's serial uh, pest nuisances. 
And um, I suppose through uh, Varsity, it outed me in so many ways yeah. that I hadn't really intended to. This was a 2008 yeah, 2008. Yes, you made yes, about it your life. impacted on Melbourne in yeah. particular. Because it was pre-recovery pre for you? Like uh, it was sort of a turning point for you, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, in the yes. Book you uh, talk about. Most of the film was done when I was really heavily addicted mm -hmm. and everything I was saying and doing, I was off the, off the, off the planet and that, you know. So. Yeah. But I, Emil, over a period of eight years, had stuck fat with me. Emil Corton Wilson was the producer and yeah, the, the, yeah. the director. Yeah, and uh, it came about that uh, I had done two one-year jail sentences during that filming, mm -hmm. and on that last jail sentence, 2005, I came out, or a little after 2005, I did have an epiphany in that last jail sentence. I'd undertaken the Maramali program, of which I write about yeah. that. It was the uh, the catalyst. It was the uh, it relit uh, my uh, I like to say grogged up, drugged up, mucked up dreamings, and that instantly did that. Because it's a sort of healing program. Specifically well, it was a healing, but also it led me to believe that you know, in my, you know, I, everybody calling me uncle, I should uh, be rigid and play. Yeah. The uncle statesman, you know, that I am, statesperson yeah. that I am. Mm -hmm. uh, I get a lot of respect in prisons from those in blue and those in green. So the obvious direction for me to undertake is to go and uh, come out of that prison uh, intending to be my community's uh, leading black light, I like to yeah. say, the beacon, you know, uh, the local... Kadaicha man, the Featherfoot, the lawman of the Smith Street Strip in Collingwood, Fitzroy. And I did undertake that. Took two years mm -hmm. to finish off the documentary. Took two years at the same time to jump off to methadone because on this last jail sentence, I, uh, uh, I was convinced by the doctor to do this one last jail sentence mm -hmm. on methadone. I'd always rejected it in all the other prison sentences I'd done mm -hmm. as an adult. Uh, because I knew the history yeah. and I knew it would be difficult to come off heroin. But before I went into jail, six months, nine months before I went in, uh, this was discussed with, um, with uh, my, the doctor at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you know, look, hook up with the methadone clinic in Guilford Street, Fitzroy, and uh, start the process before you do your time. Mm. So uh, I made that initial promise once I hooked up to the methadone service that I would never pick up another needle or shoot up any powders or pop any pills from that moment. Mm -hmm. And I've stuck fat with that decision, you know, because uh, you know, I had this basic yes, concept. Now to the book. Yes, that real black fellows oughtn't to be shooting white powder. <gasps> You know, because we behave like white people, yeah. stealing things and things like that. Yeah, that's not something I've heard before. I think that's that's your that's amazing. But writing the book, you know, yeah. putting this in the first chapter, the you know, elements of my uh, yeah, my behaviour, yeah. and waxing lyrical about being out late at night in the leafy shady yeah. shades of the East Q and uh, ducking and weaving with the foxes and the possums yeah. and the cats and talking to the dogs, the owner's dogs, before 
yeah. uh, entering well, your house. this is the thing. I just actually was reading these chapters just before you arrived, and what I think is so striking about it, and it seems to be very much the sort of way the book unfolds, is that you're telling these stories that as you tell them, you know, you sort of feel like, I mean, some of them are so funny in a way because you're talking about a burglary where, um, you know, you were in the house, the couple came home, she recognises you, you know, the husband saying, come out, I know you're in there, you come out and the wife recognises you as this famous actor, which is just, I mean, it's unbelievable. But then all of a sudden you sort of whip the carpet out from under us by making it incredibly poignant because you then say at one stage in the book, these are the crimes I committed in an Aboriginal law. There's no mitigating circumstances. A crime is a crime. And it's just really a sucker punch when you sort of balance these two things together. I mean, was that intentional to bring the humour oh, yes, yeah, against yeah, the yeah. heart? Or All is that, that just who oh, you yeah, are? Yeah, how did you, how did you do it, that? It, it comes, you know, you give them one part of it. That's part of the... Uh, uh, my, my, my duty nowadays is to inform and educate, etc. And... Uh, through the process of uh, doing varsity, and especially those last two years, uh, doing you know catch-up shots and, and etc. Um, uh, straight, and on the on the way of jumping off the methadone, I realised that I had this potential within me that I could uh, uh, use my fine sense of con artistry, you might say. The salesman. You know, yes, the, yeah, the charmer. Yeah. You know, <laughs> charming. Fellow. Which, incidentally, I am struggling with right now because your voice, above anything else, is just quite amazing. <laughs> anyway, sorry, keep going. No, no, Lost no. Lost my but, professionalism you know, there yeah. for a moment. Well, that's it. You know, uh, yeah, well, I've got to use all the talent, you know, all, all the means at my disposal <laughs> to get people, you know, listening in, hearing me, taking me seriously, and that. So, um, right from the get go, you know, my, uh, my addiction. You know, I put it down to what was taught to me at the Box Hill Boys' Home. Mm -hmm. I do remember a teacher who had favoured me, uh, bless him, and he gave me elocution lessons. And he also taught me that uh, the monetary system, that uh, 12 pennies made a bob, a mm -hmm. shilling. Because mm. <laughs> you were at the same time, you were explaining the book that you were, um, you know, you did the burglaries and you were a drug addict, but then you were also pretty careful and clever with your money. Like, oh, yeah. it, it taught you to be quite frugal when you were working at the factory, your first job. Yes, I think, yeah, you yeah. know, you had this pay packet and you managed it. I mean, it's such a contradiction. Well, you know, I, I, nobody from the ward of the state, the ward of the state or the Aboriginal Welfare Board had told me that I was to give my money my pay packet unopened to Widow Murphy mm. when I got Your home on a Thursday mom. night, you know, yeah. my foster mum. When those fellows at, at work cajoled me into heading over to Fitzroy because they knew that I wasn't really happy yeah. living this is with where the Murphys because they were your... in denying of yeah. my, you know, the Box Hill Boys Home, there were incidences happening in there that led me to believe that I did have family. Yeah. Okay, so I came out and I kept pestering mum you know, and the Welfare Board and the Aboriginal Protection Board to tell, you know, that uh, where is my mum, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, where is uh, the uncle and auntie that came in and visited me when I was about um, uh, 13, etc. you know, mm -hmm. or, 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 or 12, yeah. you know? And uh, why is this other fellow that came into Box Hill Boys Home about a month before I left? named Arthur, had the same name, Charles, yeah, yeah. and we looked alike, you know, and I thought he was my brother, you know, we could be brothers. So, you know, all this, you know, really, I had that fine sense of piss-offedness that, uh, that I, I was denied 
yeah. you know, truth and history here. Yeah, which is the theme of your life as a member of the Stolen Generation. But what I'm wondering is, because you talk about it as, you know, members of the Stolen Generation are always trying to piece together what has happened and all this missing information. It's like you've missed the first, you know, I've read someone describe it as missing the first act of a play and you're always... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's scrambling to work out, you know, if you come in at act two, what, well, what has gone before that, it. That, that's how it's come about. And here yeah. I am catching up and writing about yeah, it. Yeah, well, I was wondering, in the process of writing the book, did you discover more information? Did you discover more yeah, about as yourself? Yeah, I was writing it's the part book, of the puzzle? I, I get to discover more. Yeah. You know, especially now being a man of note and travelling around the country, I get aunties and uncles telling me, you should know more about your mum, yeah. Jack. You know, she was well known here in New South Wales you know, at Orange and Dubbo. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, the year before last, Corey Heritage uh, did find my father. He was a Philip Burns from Leeton, New South Wales, which yeah. now, it's nice to be able to say a fellow, a stolen person is now not a mere Curie. Yeah. But I am uh, Radri on my father's side. Yeah. The last clan to be contained. Yeah. Uh, with the help of the Victorian Native Police Force mm. and the Queensland Native Police Force. And you talk about um, how much it galls you that you didn't find out this information about your father until your 70s. Yes, yes, yes. When there are things like this that um, I guess are still fresh, how do you write about them in a way that... Um, they're not finished, you know, the story's not finished. How do you kind of put this down on the page when... The process is ongoing. Well, the pr process is ongoing. I have this uh, inherent obligation to the country and to myself, mm -hmm. but to the country and to my people, to the mobs and that. Uh, white and black, uh, those that are sought sanctuary, we need to bleed, you know, Indigenous truth onto our schools, curriculums. Each mm -hmm. state has got its own unique take, a unique story of invasion. Mm -hmm. It's a word that uh, white people are just getting used to, that they have to put, they have to cope with it. You know, like, uh, you know, putting me on uh, Q&A in response to Adam Good's kerfuffle yeah. uh, the week after, you know, led to, I mean, I did say that, you know, my opening camp, and I remember was that Australia is uniquely and peculiarly racist against the First Nations people, and here's a fine example. Yeah. And, that. and so the other example, my job is to educate them yeah. and to try and get the government and the federal government to bleed each state's unique truth in history onto our state schools curriculum and we're not going to get anywhere 
by the way, in, in regard to uh, recognition, they all know that already recognise us as Aboriginals. Uh, reconciliation, we won't be reconciled uh, with this present generation nor the next one, proved positive by the uh, successive Prime Ministers knocking the Makarata on the head yeah. and etc. So we're looking to educate, uh, you know, the, the, the children now, year 10 and 12 students and even younger kids in primary schools, you know, get a real hoot when elders come in like myself yeah. and Auntie, uh, uh, Auntie Br uh, Caroline Briggs and others go into primary schools, they get a real hoot that that primary school is built on so-and-so country. Yeah, and I mean, as you say, we are still, as a nation, struggling to come to terms with this. Off offside. Yeah, yes, the, yes. the process is only really just beginning. And you talk in the book about the day that you were refused a taxi ride unless you paid the fare up front and you had just come minutes before from the Victorian <laughs> Senior Australian of the Year ceremony with your trophy. And I'm just wondering what impact do you hope this book has in terms of advancing the conversation about race and Indigenous welfare in this country? Like, can uh, one book like this... Yeah, no, look, taxi drivers are have been told by cab charge people uh, that they're allowed to refuse Aboriginal people uh, by their CEOs. I've spoken to the CEOs down in Melbourne of uh, the taxi driver delivery services down there. I think I remember speaking to uh, Tom, uh, you know, the CEO of the taxi driver service up here when I was refused at Belvoir. Yeah. Uh, the irony is when I was doing Corrindirk at Belvoir, uh, there were taxis you know, driving around with my image on the back advertising Corrin Dirk. Oh, my goodness, so the, the idea, is you know, extreme. I did, you know, suggest to these people at a, at a Spring Street uh, building, government building with a transport lackey looking on, uh, I, I gave them my pitch. I said, the idea is that uh, we need to actually be at the immigration gate like we were with down in Melbourne, Victoria, uh, when we were with the Vietnamese came in. Yeah. They were given a cross-cultural awareness program upon arrival, okay? But now, we don't do that. Indigenous people aren't at the immigration gate when the people from the subcontinent come in and they're the ones that, that are, they show their worst behaviour yeah. uh, to us. So the irony like is brown-skinned people reject other, you know, the original brown-skinned people of this country. I somehow firmly believe, I always look for the good in them because I do get the, you know, so many uh, people from the subcontinent that we do get on with. Yeah. And, uh, and I always give them when they're driving me somewhere where I do buy, I don't get taxis now. Yeah. I'm too frightened that I might, I'm, I'm not as, I don't get, I get really peed off. Yeah. But I don't get angry to the point of, uh, of what uh, Michael Long did. So there's some... Because if you've got a taxi voucher and you're Aboriginal, no, or you're disabled and white or something and you're looking poor, you're asked for a sum of money in broad daylight too. Yeah. You know, and I believe that this was, a, you know, a racist ploy. But no, I've spoken to the taxi industry people, uh, Taxi Drivers Union, and I said, no, no, we're allowed to do this. So it is, you know, through the taxi driving services, you know, there's a fine example yeah. of how well aided and abetted racism has kept alive and functioning in this country. And I think that we wouldn't even, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you as a white woman with no sense until I read your book that this is, you know, you hear about racism in such general terms, but to understand that experience, I mean, it's just so far removed from what, you know, I would experience. And, you know, do you feel that, um, that 
I guess, I mean, how much do you think you can communicate that to us? How much can you educate your readers? Like, is it something we'd ever really be able to understand or is it just so removed? We, we, we'll do it in plays. We do it in plays. We're the ones, white and black theatres, you know, Bangara Dance, you know, ballet and uh, white ballet, all these theatres in this country. We're the ones that are educating white Australians, young and old, uh, poor and rich, you know, uh, it, it, into uh, some elements of history. There's some stories of Indigenous stories, uh, you know, some Indigenous stories and etc. We're the ones uh, that have been uh, uh, placing into the minds of, uh, of Australians, white and black, and those that have sought sanctuary and found it here. Mm. We're the ones that have been trying to educate uh, yeah. white Australia about, uh, you know, in, uh, the first Australians. And I think that because that's such a huge undertaking and it can be, you know, it's such a hard subject to deal with and so multifaceted, as you say, the role of humour that you display so powerfully in the book, I mean, is that something that you feel really services this mission, that it actually can make us connect because humour is universal and, you know, it's, it's uh, such a powerful tool? Well, uh, you know, you get a good giggle and a laugh because the message is there yeah. and people go away really happy that they've learned some, something that they hadn't previously known about yeah. or they had highly suspected. Yeah. Except, uh, and when it was put over across at uh, at a talk that I give, you know, they go away really happy with themselves, you know, because uh, uh, they enjoyed my talk. Uh, they hung around in the foyer wanting selfies with me. There's proof positive that people enjoy what I do, yeah. what I've said, and uh, that they, you know, they come in the midwinter in the rain and the hail and bright sunshine to come and hear yeah. the great JC talk, you know, the second coming, I like to say, brown like the original fella. <laughs> exactly. I could. I feel like your voice is my headspace meditation app now. I'm just going to listen to it, listen to this podcast on loop just to calm down. You, you talk in the book as well right at the beginning about the fact that with everything that you went through at Box Hill, which is some of the most harrowing material I, I've read in any memoir, that bottling it up was your coping mechanism at the time. You just didn't talk about it. It was fact you accepted it. What has it felt like now to go completely as far in the opposite direction, to reveal everything to such a broad audience? Have there been moments, I mean, obviously you became used to it with Varsity, but are there moments well, where you just think it's it. all out it there does, now? It does depend, you know, when Arndo, you mm -hmm. know, he, he did me on a brush with fame. I call him the great extractor. <laughs> He extracted, you know, information that I hadn't bled, you know, previously. Yeah. It just comes out, you know, some new element of my memory, you know, about a certain time and what happened in the abuse processes, you know, came up and, uh, mm. and then I remember uh, poor Jane Harrison, you know, talking to her and he says, you bugger Jack, you're the only one that's made me cry. There you go, there you go. She and I might need to have a cup of tea and a debrief. Um, I just would like to thank you so much for coming. I would encourage every one of our listeners to pick up this book. It is really moving and it is not like any book that I have ever read before. And I have one more request before you go. When it comes to record the audiobook, will you please do it yourself? I have done it. Have you? And that's I've available now. I've done this now. book and the you know, audio book. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I know what I'm going to do I've got a lot of blind friends at Kuyong there at the Blind Institute down there because they like my sexy voice too, <laughs> you know. 
So they're like hearing me. Yeah. With apologies to listeners who heard me come apart during this podcast, I am very sorry about my lapse in professionalism, but I promise you could do no better in this circumstance. I am so grateful. Thank you so much, Jack. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.